Well, it's great that you're able to join us again during this period of lockdown. Uh, we've been working through Mark's Gospel for some time now, and in fact, this is the 41st sermon in our Mark series. And in this morning, we're going to finish off chapter 11. So please have those verses open in front of you. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we do ask that as we open your word, we would hear it for what it is, that it is, in fact, your words and your words carry authority, authority that we should listen to. So we ask, Lord, please help us to humble ourselves before your word this morning. Help us to listen. Help us to be attentive. Help us to hang on your every word. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand what we hear by the power of your spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is all about authority. What are you like with authority? Uh, I guess we're all different. Some of us like to follow rules and others of us are a bit more rebellious just by our very nature. I'd argue, though, that most of us, if not all of us, have some kind of a rebellious streak, even though we might not want to identify it as such. Even if you can't identify with the idea of being rebellious, we are all of us rule breakers to one extent or another, aren't we? The evidence of that is everywhere. One easy example, I suppose, is breaking the speed limit for those of us who drive. Isn't it easy to justify doing this? You know how it goes. I was running late, so I thought I'd just go a bit quicker. I needed to. I needed to get there. It's important. And anyway, the road was empty. It's not hurting anybody. And do you know what? The speed limit on this stretch is ridiculous. Yeah, there's no buildings anywhere. Sure, I can go faster than 30. See, there are occasions when all of us, even though we know the rules and we know that we're expected to comply with the rules, we still justify breaking the rules. And why do we do it? It's because we think that we know better. And you know what? We might be right and we might get away with it, such as this. But again, we run the danger of not being right as well, don't we? And either way, here's the point, it's still breaking the rules. A friend of mine once related to me how he'd been in a pay and display car park and someone who was just leaving uh, offered him their ticket, which still had about an hour or so of parking left on it. And he declined the offer of the ticket because it said that he said to them that the ticket clearly said on it, right there in front of him, not transferable. Well, let's just say the reply from the person offering him the ticket he got was not pretty. See, we don't like having our rule breaking pointed out, do we? It's amazing the ridiculous arguments that we will actually use so that we don't need to back down and admit that we're wrong about something. And what's going on behind the scenes when we think that we know better and we won't back down about something is pride. That's really what it boils down to. We think to ourselves, you know, the law is an ass. I know better. Therefore, I will put myself 
above the law. Well, perhaps we don't word it that way, but that's what we're doing. And yet, here's the thing. We know on some level that we are in the wrong. We know it in our heart of hearts, don't we? And that's why we only do these kinds of things when either nobody is looking or when everybody else is doing it. Because, of course, there's safety in numbers, isn't there? Dare I raise the issue of self-isolation? Now, in this short passage that we're looking at this morning, we have a confrontation between Jesus and a representation of the leaders of the Jewish people. And it's a confrontation all about authority. Breaking it down simply, in verses 27 to 28, we have the challenge as a delegation approached Jesus with questions about his authority. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus replies with a question of his own. And in those last verses, verses 31 to 33, after much deliberation, these leaders decide that they're going to fudge the issue. So that's the challenge, the query and the cop-out. Let's start at verse 27. Take a look with me. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? So Jesus is back in the temple after having spent another evening out at Bethany. It's now the Wednesday of the Easter week. And you'll remember, on just the previous day, Jesus has been in this exact same place. And there's been quite a commotion in the temple courts as he has turned over the tables of the money changers. And he's obstructed the flow of commerce going through the temple. And worse than that, he's then preached to the gathering crowds who've come to see what's going on. And it's a message of utter condemnation on the practices and the institution of the temple. He's exposed it all as an empty religious institution that bears no fruit for salvation. Like the Pharisees, they've polished the outside of the dish, but inside it is dirty. The sepulchre has been whitewashed, as it were, but inside is just dead men's bones and decay. The whole thing is just a religious mirage. There's no substance to it. Now, this is a huge thing for Jesus to do. Uh, you'll remember only 20 years earlier, Jesus has longed to be at the temple. It was the place that he wanted to be most of all. Didn't you know, he asked his bewildered parents, that I must be in my father's house? Now, here he is 20 years later and he's declared it as cursed. He's called it a den of thieves. The activities of the previous day are most probably the these things that the delegation is referring to in verse 28 there. Mark mentions for us three parties that make up this group that have come to challenge Jesus. You've got the chief priests. They're the ones who operated and ran the temple there in Jerusalem. And then you've got the teachers of the law, the lawyers, the experts 
who taught the law of Moses to the people. And you've got the elders, respected leaders from amongst the Jewish community. And they were the three groups that made up something called the Sanhedrin. That was a group of 71 representatives who formed the supreme court of the Jewish nation there in Jerusalem. Operating under Roman rule, they were the top authority amongst the Jewish people. If it fell to anyone to screen and filter and challenge new teachings that claimed to come from God, it was to them. And so their question actually has a ring of legitimacy to it. You've come to the hub and the centre of Jewish religion and you have challenged the way we do things and you have spoken strong words against us. So what's your authority? And who gave you that authority? Who do you think you are that you have the right to do this, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, you have to remember that these are basically made up from the same group of people who have been stalking Jesus for months, even years, actually, since he began his ministry. If you go back to Mark chapter three, even in verse six there in the third chapter, the plotting has already started against Jesus from these people. And you only have to glance back, actually, to verse 18 here in chapter 11 to see that the chief priests are just waiting for an opportunity to carry out those self-same plans to get rid of Jesus. And all that stops them, really, is public opinion. And crowds, as we all know, crowds can be fickle. Now, my hunch is that these people have had the night to think about what's happened the previous day. And this question that they come to Jesus with is calculated to get Jesus here and now to publicly indict himself. They want him to take him to, to self-destruct in front of the crowds, basically. Their job is to weed out false teachers and blasphemers. Blasphemy is basically to speak falsely about God. And Blasphemy 101, as far as the Jews are concerned, was to wrongfully claim the authority of God for yourself. You'll perhaps recall that this is exactly what they accused Jesus of back in Mark chapter 2, when he proclaimed that the sins of the paralysed man were forgiven. Blasphemy, gasped the Pharisees. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're saying you can do things only God can do, Jesus. And see, what this Sanhedrin group wants is for Jesus to say something along the lines of, well, my authority comes directly from God. And then it's checkmate as far as they're concerned. Then they can take him apart. Then they can publicly discredit Jesus. See, the crowds would lap it up. From God, are you? God wouldn't sanction breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. You break the Sabbath. Would God turn against his own temple, Jesus? What does this man, you know, why, why is this man here, crowds? Listen, why is this man here? The lone voice against all of your other teachers. Makes Jesus look pretty suspect, doesn't it? And ultimately, of course, 
blasphemy carried the penalty of death. So that's the problem finally eliminated. But Jesus, the one who is wiser than Solomon, gives a master response. It's a response that avoids the trap, but actually it does not avoid the question. It's utterly brilliant. Have a look with me, verse 29. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. In the classic style of the rabbis, Jesus answers their question with a question. If you can give me a straight answer to my one simple question, I will give you a straight, unequivocal answer to yours. What have they got to do? They must assess the baptism of John. That's all Jesus asked them to do. Now we're talking about John the Baptist here. John's baptism, as it's called here, is shorthand for the whole of John's ministry. For to be baptised by John was to throw your lot in with everything that he taught. Now where did John the Baptist get his authority? Jesus is then asking them to publicly declare in front of the crowds whether or not John was a bona fide prophet of God. Was he the real deal? And we know from verse 32 where Mark tells us that the crowds had already strongly made up their minds on this issue. In fact, you've got to think about it, many of them would probably have been amongst the multitudes baptised by him, committed to what John had taught. So actually, though, why is this such a big deal? So what if John came with the authority of God? Why can't they concede that? And by the way, don't be confused by the word heaven. This is just a traditional way that Jewish people would uh, refer to God without using the name of God. Jesus is then asking them whether his authority came from God or men. And it's a big deal because of what John himself said about Jesus. Mark sums up John's teaching in chapter one, saying this. Chapter one, verse seven to eight. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptised you with water. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The other gospel accounts fill in the picture even more. Behold, cries John upon seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must become greater, I must become less. Perhaps the most devastating thing of all, a, a great summary of, Jesus, of John's teaching on Jesus, is in John 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John's view on Jesus was plain for all to see and hear, wasn't it? To declare heaven or God as the source of John's authority 
is to declare it doubly so for Jesus. So surely the way to go is to discredit John. But they simply cannot do that. Take a look at verse 31. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It does seem that they would have been then happy to discredit John, even though everybody knew the truth, presumably including them, if it solved their Jesus problem, they'd have gone there. But as it is, they cannot, because the very crowd that they're counting on to destroy Jesus believe that John was in fact a prophet. Their final response, says Mark, is driven by fear. That's what Mark tells us in verse 32. Even though they know the truth, it's weird, isn't it? It's not that they are ignorant of what they're doing. It's not that they're ignorant of who Jesus is. In fact, as we saw earlier, Jesus has actually, albeit indirectly, given a clear answer to where his authority comes from. But they are just so full of hatred for Jesus. Jesus is the one challenging their precious authority. He's rocking their precious little world that they reject him and they want him dead. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Yet again, we are confronted by the stark truth then that it is possible to reject Jesus even when presented with wave after wave of clear evidence for who he is. It is possible for the human heart to become so hardened against him and so full of pride that we would rather attribute what he did and said to other, any other, vaguely plausible source than to God. Even to demons, as in the case of the lawyers in, John, in Mark chapter 3. It's amazing, isn't it? The Sanhedrin delegation is in a bit of a pickle here, aren't they? Well, what do you do when you know the truth, but you don't want to say it? Well, they could have learned a thing or two from the world of politics, couldn't they? It's always happening there. Uh, in the brilliant TV satire on British politics, Yes Minister, we see the master at work as Sir Humphrey responds to the minister, James Hacker. This is how it goes. Hacker says, so when you give your evidence to the think tank, are you going to support my view that the civil service is overmanned and feather-bedded or not? Yes or no? Straight answer. Well, Minister, says Sir Humphrey, if you ask me for a straight answer, then I shall say that, as far as we can see, looking at it by and large, taking things with another in terms of the average of departments, then in the final analysis it is probably true to say that at the end of the day, in general terms, you would probably find that, not to put too fine a point on it, there probably wasn't very much in it one way or the other as far as one can see at this stage. But as it is, the answer given in verse 33 
is a lie. We don't know, they say, and it's a cop-out. They know that Jesus has just completely outmanoeuvred them. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Notice, Jesus does not say, neither can I tell you, just that he will not, which implies that he knows that they, despite knowing, also will not. And there can be little doubt, actually, that anyone listening in knows exactly what Jesus has just declared. His authority is indeed from heaven. He comes with the authority of God. And that's the point of this whole exchange, really, isn't it? So let's try to bring it home as we think about these verses uh, in closing. What authority do you think that Jesus has? And are you consistent with what you believe about Jesus's authority? Well, I hope by now that you're not making the mistake of saying that Jesus was just some kind of a great teacher or a guru who lived 2000 years ago, completely irrelevant to us today. His every word and action, indeed the empty tomb and the existence of the church clearly say otherwise, don't they? Here is the man with godlike authority. Why? Because his, come, his power comes from God. He has authority over disease and disasters and devils and death. Even the authority to declare the forgiveness of sins. Will you submit to his authority? Or will you argue against it? Or proudly reject it? That is to take on the authority of God himself. And this little interaction warns us, doesn't it? That continued dogged rejection of the truth can result in a dreadful silence from him. There comes a time when Jesus will no longer answer. When enough has been said and it is clear that you are simply not listening. That's a dreadful place to be. And if that's you, then my prayer is that you will come to your senses. Stop evading the truth. Come to him whilst there is still time. Jesus gave his life to save rebels like you and me. He will not turn away anyone who earnestly comes to him and seeks him. And for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, then I would want to remind us this morning that to follow Jesus means submitting to this authority. Allow the word of God to wield its authority over you whenever it is opened. This is a truth that should humble us, isn't it? Perhaps there are areas of your life or areas of your character where God's word has shown you that you seriously fall short. Do not delay in bowing the knee to him, confessing your failure and seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to change. And finally, I want to remind us that as his true church, his authority is delegated to us. And this is a truth that should embolden us. For Jesus said that all authority has been given to him 
And therefore, on that basis, we are to go into the world and make disciples. We've got no authority of ourselves. But when we speak his truth, when we speak his words, we do so as ambassadors of the King of Heaven. And as ambassadors, behind us stands the sovereign authority of the King of Kings. See, people might want to rail at us for being arrogant, for being judgmental, even being bigoted in the views that we express from the word of God. But listen, that's on God. We don't declare our opinions. That's the beauty of this, isn't it? Instead, we declare his truth and his gospel. And we will not be ashamed. For he says, behold, I am with you even to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would forgive our rebellious hearts and grant that we would have hearts that truly and wholly submit to you. Help us to go boldly into our world, even in these strange days of lockdown, to declare by all means possible your truth and your gospel. We do pray for our world, a world in such desperate need of forgiveness and of hope. And we thank you for Jesus, your son, our Lord and our God, who, despite his authority, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Help us take that news into the world, we ask in your name. Amen.